It's time for your dose of Lamb Talks, the official podcast of Lambda Kappa Sigma. I'm Sarah Kaboyan. I am Justine Dixon. I am Letitia Warnick. We are pharmacists. LKS sisters. And your Lamb Talks hosts. Our mission is to elevate our sisters through the sharing of wisdom, knowledge, and experiences from our esteemed alumni network and other special guests as we discuss the challenges and opportunities we face within our careers and everyday lives. Tune in monthly to learn something new about the wonderful profession of pharmacy. Happy Hygieia Day! Woohoo! Yay! Happy Hygieia Day, everyone! It is the month of March, and as an LKS sister, you should automatically be thinking March, Hygieia Day, professionalism, pharmacy, knowledge to the public. Right, Letitia? Yes, this is my favorite month for LKS because as a student, you're almost done with the semester, but you have an opportunity to celebrate Hygieia Day, reinvigorate all of those LKS memories, and it's just lovely. I know. I always liked March too for LKS. I think because normally by now you're well into your semester. Maybe you've just welcomed some new lambs into your chapter. If you held orientation in the spring, you're having spring break. And I feel like you're really like finding your footing. And then you have Hygieia Day. And I always liked Hygieia Day a lot, actually. I always enjoyed it. When you were a student, what was something that your chapter did for Hygieia Day? How did you celebrate? So we were very lucky where each year we would have a speaker and oftentimes our professional, one of the offices that sisters held within the chapter, they were able to get the topic CE approved. So normally it would be a professor at the college who would come and teach us. And because it was CE approved, oftentimes alumni came. So it was a great way to have like an alumni collegiate reunion. And we had some really cool professors come in. I remember it was nice as a younger sister, seeing some of the faculty who I would later have when I was in the class year that they taught. Oh, that's awesome. That's nice to engage alumni, have a nice event. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think one year too, we mixed it up a little bit and we kept it within the chapter, but we did like poster presentations on different disease states. And then the past few years, it's been virtual because of COVID and everything, but it's a nice time. It's a good time to collaborate collegiate alumni chapters. What about you? What did your chapter do? I remember we used to have women in pharmacy panels. We'd have pharmacists that would come in chat with us about their experience practicing out in pharmacy. But also what my chapter did while I was there is that's actually how our Girl Scout event got started. So one of my dear friends, Amanda, shout out to Amanda if you're listening, she had coordinated our first Girl Scout event to help Girl Scouts get their first aid badge in honor of Hygieia Day. And we'd always would celebrate it on that weekend around Hygieia Day. And that's just what I remember most because it was just all the chapter members coming together, coordinating this event, delivering the event. We'd have all these young girls as Girl Scouts come to campus. And it was just so much fun. I love that. I think that really emulates the purpose of Hygieia Day and really holds the spirit that it's with the public. It's not necessarily a closed event just for chapter members, but you're sharing 
what a pharmacist can do with these young girls who are at such an age where everything is impressionable. And who knows, maybe some of those girls now are in pharmacy school or in high school getting ready to sit for um, AP exams to get ready for pharmacy school. Who knows? Yeah. And it's really awesome too, because this event has continued since I was a student there. So we keep doing the first aid badge event every year. And now that I'm on the other side and I get to precept and be faculty there, mm-hmm. it's very nice. It's very full circle for me. So I enjoy that a lot. Yeah. For those of you listening, if you haven't followed Letitia's story, she's actually advisor of her collegiate chapter. So now she gets to help the girls where she once was. Yes. Yes. And I get to connect them with the alumni as well, because we need alumni preceptors. So it's a nice opportunity to engage our collegiate members and the alumni members for an awesome event. Maybe those are some ideas that you can use in your chapters too, when you're celebrating Hygieia Day. And again, Hygieia being the goddess of health. She's gorgeous. She's literally a goddess. (laughs) Yeah. And more on Hygieia later, but we're doing a podcast. And we have a guest, don't we? Yes, we do. We have a very special guest. So when we were thinking, we were putting our heads together. We were thinking March, Hygieia Day. What sister really can speak about Hygieia Day? We're working on having themes to our episodes. We're working about connecting it with bigger fraternity themes. So obviously we wanted to make sure March was Hygieia Day. So we have an extra special guest today. We have... Starlin Hayden Gretting as our guest. That's right. The Starlin. We are so excited. <laughs> We're so excited. She's been kind of like a bucket list guest for me, which I know it's funny to say we haven't had the podcast for too, too long, but just in terms of sisters and hearing people's stories, I was really like, you know what, we need to do a Hygiene Day episode with Starlin because after learning more about what her work has involved hearing her speak at convention, presenting CEs, her presence at convention is so fun, but I was like, we need her on the podcast. So we are so lucky that she was so willing to speak with us. She actually met with us after having a trustees on committee meeting. So she was all revved up for LKS. She had her LKS sweatshirt on and she was ready to go. Yeah, she shared so many awesome points with us. This will be a two-part episode because Starlin had shared so many amazing points and we are just so excited to have her on and have her share all of the wonderful things she's done and help to get us fired up about pharmacy. Yeah, fired up about pharmacy, fired up about sharing pharmacy with others, you know, really advocating for yourselves as women and men in pharmacy, really advocating for the role of the pharmacist in any setting, because if there's one person who's going to show us that any setting needs a pharmacist, it's Starlin. Her CV, her role, her story, it's so inspiring. It's just hearing what she had to do just for her balance of life. I think we all can take a page out of her book. Yeah, there are so many points to take away from the things that she talked about, and I'm excited for everyone to hear it. So without further ado, presenting part one with Starlin Hayden Gretting. All right, sisters, again, happy Hygieia Day. Letitia and I are here with Dr. Starlin Hayden Gretting. She is a pharmacist, 
a sister and we are so excited to have her. Hi, Starlin. Hi, you guys. I'm really happy to be here. It's very exciting. And having received the Bowl Hygieia, I'm very honored to be one of your speakers for Hygieia Day. So we did a lot of research in preparation. There were many things to read about you, Starlin, which was <laughs> awesome. And I remember you receiving some of the awards at various conventions and providing many a CE. So we're so excited to get to know the woman behind the talks. One of the first things that kind of stuck out to us is your role and your background. And one of the things we saw is your title is pharmacoepidemiologist. So can you kind of tell us about your background and kind of how you got to being a pharmacoepidemiologist and kind of what that means? I did a residency with the Indian Health Service in 1980. There weren't very many residencies and there were not very many doctor pharmacy programs. And so if you got to do a residency, it was a big deal. And nobody wanted to go to Alaska. <laughs> and, and so I, I had a bucket list of states I wanted to go. I'm from a family of men. I have four brothers and my dad served under Patton and we were very military. So we did everything outdoors. And I was the equivalent of a Boy Scout gets the Eagle Scout. Well, the in the Girl Scouts, you get a gold star. So I was very outdoor and I thought, oh, this is going to be great because, you know, it's the last frontier. And so I did this residency and I was stationed in Anchorage, but I, because I was a drug information specialist is what my focus was in pharmacy school. My job was to set up these telehealth technology drug info program for all the tribal sites and the other offshoots of the main hospital in Anchorage in the Indian Health Service. We used CB radios as like a telehealth process. So, and my handle was medicine dropper. <laughs> and so, because we actually flew over the and dropped their medicines, their unit dose medicines in these containers that had parachutes on top of it. And so it was so fun. It was very exciting. It's like being in the military, but not being in the military. So it was, it was very exciting. But while I was there, a group of epidemiologists were doing research on the cultural background of the Alaska natives and whether they were related to the Northern Russian, Northern China peoples, or were they related to the Hawaiian native and so they were doing all these studies and we had a high incidence of diabetes because when people start eating junk food and you're normally eating whatever your natural, I mean, Alaska natives ate, you know, seals and bear and moose and fish, high fish. So they had really good cardiac profiles and everything, but then Doritos came and Twinkies came and all this great food and things started being flown into Alaska and they started not being so rugged, then that impacted their diets. And so they had a high rate of, of diabetes. So the glyburide study was going on. So I was immersed in with this group of people and they were so fun because they worked really hard, but they did yoga and they were, they they were just a fun group of epidemiologists. And so here I was a little drug information girl and they knew nothing about drugs. <laughs> and so when you're in that residency position and you're in that remote process, everybody bonds together. And I was kind of interested anyway, because I took anthropology. 
uh, during the summer when I wasn't in, in the normal pharmacy school. At one point, I thought I was going to be an archaeologist. And it's one of those things, you know, in Girl Scout, they say, if you write this paragraph, we'll send you out to dig up dinosaurs in Colorado. And I'm like, sign me up. So, and, and that's, that's kind of the way I am. I, I've been stuck in the flatlands of Illinois most of my life. So every time I had an opportunity to go out there and explore something that I'd never experienced before, I did it. So that's, that's kind of, and that's how, that's the whole thing in Alaska. So So I came back from Alaska because the person I'm married to, who was also at the pharmacy school, had proposed marriage to me, and he had just applied for medical school and had got accepted. And I would have stayed with the Indian Health Service because I loved it. I loved their model, had pharmacists embedded, and I did clinics, and we went everywhere. It was just, it was the best thing I ever did in my life. And I came back from that going, why isn't the rest of the world set up on this team-based care model? And so this was like 1981, right? <laughs> we, we were just, in pharmacy, we were just getting the permission to tell the patients why they were taking the drugs they were taking in the lower 48 here. Yeah, there were laws in the 60s and 70s that prevented us from saying, okay, Mrs. Jones, the reason why you're on Valium is because you have a little anxiety and we don't want you to take too many of them, right? I mean, there were some powerful drugs that were out there and we weren't allowed to say anything about it. So in the 80s, we started getting more of that. This clinical process started building. So my husband could go to Washington WashU University there in St. Louis or SIU School of Medicine. And WashU is, you know, pharmacy school is expensive, medical school is even more expensive. And we both had pharmacy school loans that we hadn't even, you know, had addressed. So he went to Southern Illinois University because A, he got credit for have gone to a pharmacy school and it was more economical. It wasn't going to cost us an arm and leg. And so instead of staying in the Indian Health Service, I came back and I was working for uh, facts and comparison already through pharmacy school. So I kept that job. And then I went down to help. They go one year in Carbondale. So I went down and helped move him in and and just kind of walked into one of the hospitals. And they hadn't seen a female pharmacist with short hair wearing pants because that's the Bible Belt. And they needed a pharmacist at the one hospital. So I said, I'm a pharmacist. (laughs) So I took that position because I walked in the pharmacy and the director of pharmacy was literally chewing tobacco. (laughs) in the pharmacy and fill in med carts, right? And I was like, oh, I thought I'd, I'd, I thought I was in like 1920. I thought I'd, I'd gone, I graduated from school, went to a great residency and then came back to the lower 48. And I, I thought that the whole world had, had gone back oh <laughs> to the future. So that was a challenge. And I wasn't going to take the position. And the medical director, who was also the ER doctor, said, we're trying to recruit a surgeon. We want an IV infusion center. And we want we want to do all these things. We want to do total parental nutrition. And do you know anything about that? And I, we, you know, we do. We know all that. And I said, yeah, but you, you need, you know, I started naming off the things. And he goes, you're hired. And so we took the little rural hospital and, and upgraded it. And so was that sexy? Was that, was that the position that I thought I, w- I wanted after doing a residency? No, I probably looked 14. I'm 63 right now. Do you think I'm 63? 
Absolutely not. No way. Plus, plus my mama's jeans, right? And staying out of the sun. But I mean, you guys, you you two are right in the middle of it. When you walk in, they don't they think you're too young to be the real person in charge, don't they? Oh yeah. I'll answer the phone and they're like, Can I speak to the pharmacist, please? And I have to be like, that's me. You're talking to her. Can I yeah. talk to the real pharmacist? <laughs> I'll go and I always say, Oh, you mean the guy? He's my tech. <laughs> Nothing against guys, but we women, they normally think we're nurses or we're MAs or... or oh, yeah. I got yeah. mistook for a nursing student a lot in school because yeah. our school had the nursing program as well. I was right. like, oh, no. This experience gave me, you know, you asked me, how, how did you get this confidence? Well, when you're the only one doing something and the buck stops with you, you start owning what you promise and you become a promise keeper and that gives you the confidence. And that, and then when you see something, and I didn't do everything perfect, you know, it's trial and error. So you, you go, okay, I try A, A didn't work, let's try B. You've got to have multiple plans in place. And so, you know, we, we ended up creating a rural hospital in Southern Illinois that was able to handle more of those traumas that were happening because they were right down the street from Carbondale. And, and it was a college town. They had to ship everybody up to St. Louis or over to Evanston. And so it was, it was expensive. So I was part of that. So when you're part of that, I was part of the residency process in Alaska. And then when you get part of all this and you take a little, you take each lesson and you, and you build on it. So they advertised for a job up in Springfield. We had two major hospitals and then the, the School of Medicine's three-year program is Springfield. They do one year in Carbondale. And then, so they were looking for an investigational drug pharmacist. And so I said, give me two hours. I can read that. I can do it. And so we knew we were going to Springfield. And so I said, well, I'm going to go up and interview for this position. And, and at the time, all I was a BS farm with a residency and no farm D's were coming to central Illinois. Everybody wanted to go to the beautiful cities and where all the great clinical programs were in the larger hospitals and everything. And so I walk in and they go, and, you know, and my CV was, you know, a page and a half, but I had a lot of things listed on it that I had done Anything that anybody asked me to do, I tried to do it. And so I learned very early. My family's kind of a MacGyver family. So we figure things out. If I was ever stuck on an island, I'd have at least three of my brothers there because <laughs> we could get out of it, right? And so I have to tell this funny story. So I interviewed and I had, I interviewed with the nuns first because they, you know, that, that St. John's Hospital is the nuns. So I interviewed with the nuns and I went over to SIU and interviewed with SIU. You know, they kept, they, they were like, you're awful young to have done all this. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 25. <laughs> you know, you start pushing your age at that point. Anyway, and then I went to interview with the director of pharmacy of the one of the of the private hospital. He was a petite man and I'm 5'10". He took me to the cafeteria and we're sitting at the table and we're discussing. He's to tell me about this and tell me about that. And so I had all these I had all these Alaskan stories about doing CPR on a person that had succumbed to the cold during the Iditarod and four of us went for 10 hours and brought this person home. And he was like, that's unbelievable. But the entire time he talked to me, he did not make eye contact with me the entire time. So 
I'm very long. So he, when he looked at me, he looked right straight across to my chest. Now I was not very chesty, but he still just stared right there and it drove me crazy. So I kicked the chair out from behind and then I got down on my knees and got my eyes to where his eyes were. And I said, my eyes are right here. And he turned bright red. He, he was like, I, you know, I caught him. Things back in the 80s, you know, the whole dynamics of everything was a whole lot different than it is today. And he was totally embarrassed. He goes, well, I, I think I've got enough information. Uh, we'll call you. So I, I walk out of there and I'm going, I, I totally blew that one. That's not going to happen. So I'm, I'm in Springfield. I drive back down to the St. Louis area where my mom was. And I'm pulling into the driveway. And, and back, in the, back in the 80s, we didn't have cell phones. Everybody had these long extension cords on their phones. So my mom was on our front porch with her long extension cord from her landline. And she's like, they want to hire you. They want to hire you. She's shaking the phone at me. And I was like, who wants to hire me? And she goes, the Springfield people. And I, and I just started laughing because I had to tell her the story. And she goes, well, you got to always use your assets, young lady. You always use your assets. So... <laughs> But, you know, the challenge of that was I had to prove to him that I wasn't just going to use his male chauvinism. <laughs> I was going to turn a clinical program because they didn't have one. Everything was done in the basement. I was going to develop that clinical program. And that's how things started. So U of I at the time had an add-on PharmD program, which I taught. I taught pharmacokinetics and infectious disease and nutrition and several things Springfield had more pharmacists per capita than any other city, but we had a lot of community pharmacies in the Springfield area. And in the 90s, there was a big change. You know, Walgreens and CVS started getting bigger and they started buying up these smaller chains, which was a Thrifty and Rexall. They started buying those up and the pharmacists didn't want to work for them. We were trying to create a clinical team. So I ended up hiring like five of those pharmacists. Our goal was to put a pharmacist on every floor so that we had clinical pharmacists I'm part of helping write the tech certification process. And so we wanted super techs there to do all the order entry and work side by side. Anyway, that was our big plan. And I thought, oh, well, I should get a PharmD, right? <laughs> well, and here I was helping teach it and holding these classes. And then when we get everything academically done, U of I wants everybody to come up to Chicago and do a rotation, you know, do the internships. And I'm like, I'm in charge of 32 pharmacists <laughs> in the clinical program. I already did a residency. My last five years of experience should speak for itself. They said, well, you know how academia can be sometimes. They didn't want to make any adjustments. Not like University of Florida and University of Massachusetts College of Pharmacy. They take in your experience as part of your PharmD. And so... Having known that, I got a little righteous and I took all my credit hours and I moved it over into a master's in health administration and a master's in epidemiology. And then I did a fellowship in healthcare and public policy. So I appreciate you calling me a doctor, but I'm not a PhD or a PharmD, but you know, I'll take it. I'm married to a doctor. So does that count? <laughs> um, yes. You supported him through his journey. I did. I did. 
And that's part of the journey too, because the first 20 years, we've been together for 40 years. The first 20 years, I pulled and supported everybody financially. And then now I can do what I do because I have him there. So when you want to be a self-funded consultant, the first thing you have to remember is healthcare. So you can do it all on your own, but you've got every time you, you take in any money, this has to go for your healthcare, right? Because mm-hmm. the number one thing that besides paying taxes is your health care. When did you make the transition? So just to kind of let the listeners know. So you currently are a consultant, you have your own business, SHG clinical consultants. When did you decide I'm gonna go out on my own and be this rock star? So my husband did his residency with SIU in Springfield because we had kids and he was applying for a fellowship because he's an upper extremity orthopedic surgeon. He applied everywhere, and the number one spot for upper extremity is Mayo Clinic, and they take two people every year, one from the United States and one from somewhere else. And Mark's from Southern Illinois, and he's very grounded and humble, and he goes, I'm applying for this, but probably not going to get it. So I had already been working with Purdue on my PhD. Our plan B was he was going to do his fellowship at the university hospital in Indianapolis. And then we would live between where Purdue is. And and this was all going to work out, right? It was going to do exactly how we plotted it out. So match day comes. He opens up his envelope and he gets mayo, which is we're happy because, oh, my gosh, You know, one of 150,000 people probably tried to get that and he got it. So I have twin girls, identical twin girls, and then I have a son. And the girls were like, oh, we have to move, you know, because they were just starting to, you know, when you're in school and you start making friends and all that. And so I just was concerned that I was going to break all that up. And so we all had to think on our feet. So I finished as much as a PhD as I could. And I thought I could put it on the back burner for a year and that wasn't going to happen. What happened is a position opened up in between APHA, ASHP, and ASCP to do a fellowship. And the over 90 Medicare, Medicaid legislation was being put into place and they needed to cover it. And so I knew Mark was going to go to Mayo's and then come back to Springfield and be an upper extremity doctor in Springfield because there wasn't one. And so I already knew that. So I said, I need to do something for me (laughs) and I'm going to take this fellowship and we're going to make this happen. And so they used to have this flight out of Springfield. It was called the Senator's Flight and it went to DC and back. And so you could fly out on Monday morning and then it flew back on Friday afternoon. And so that's what I did. I spent $10,000 in airplane flight. Maybe I broke even on the fellowship. I don't know. But during the fellowship, to in order to earn a lot of money, you know this book, this uh, pharmacotherapy of pathophysiologic approach, Michael Posey? I worked for Michael Posey all the way while I was doing the fellowship and assistant edited many journals. And, and that book in particular introduced me to all those names and all the movers and shakers of pharmacy in the United States at this time. So while it didn't pay very well, I learned a great deal and I learned how to network with the right people 
so that we could make things happen for pharmacy as fast as we can. And I, they were interested in what I was doing because I was embedded in the government process. And so it was, you know, it was, it was a great experience. Again, I leaned in. I didn't say no. I said, I'll try it and give me two hours and I can be an expert in everything. So when I came back from that fellowship, you know, I had eight-year-old little girls and a five-year-old little boy. I decided then that I, everybody was going to 10 and 12 hour shifts. And I was like, I'll die. (laughs) I can't, I mean, even though, I mean, right now, if there's something going on, you know, I work until the deadline's done, right? But if there's something about being in a home spot or having the flexibility that if a child gets sick or there's a, an occasion that there's some flexibility around that. And even with Mark being a resident, we tried to always make the kids first, right? I mean, my kids had the hospital memorized. They knew where all the hiding places were. They could go to the cafeteria and get tap. For some reason, they got addicted to tapioca pudding. And and, um, it's so cute because when they came back, my mom ended up breaking her hip and we brought her up and had her fixed up here. And the kids all came home to see her because everybody knows what a broken hip means. And so the twins are walking around and all the nurses and everybody that was there when they were babies, everybody started coming out of the woodwork wanting to see what they had turned out like. It was so wonderful. So, you know, when you make, when you have these jobs that create these family units around you, you can grow. And that's what I miss now. As a consultant, I probably replicate that kind of relationship within my group. Maybe that's why I get the contract because I'm approachable and I'm down to earth and I'm transparent and I'm a promise keeper. Some of the things I get very disappointed in, and I was part of 10 City Challenge. Our pharmacists in Illinois were part of the Diabetes 10 City Challenge. It started in Asheville, and then we did all those 10 cities, and we replicated. It's the basis of why we're trying to get an expanded scope of practice going, and everybody was way into it. That first six weeks, you know, everybody's this is great. I love doing this. And then you get to the fourth or fifth year and you get people straggle off. Well, I don't really want to do that. And that's why I think we're not moving ahead in the, with our provider status processes because, I mean, I put my husband through medical school and I watch him and he's very dedicated to his patients. He's probably the most approachable surgeon in Springfield because he's mm-hmm. from a small town. He still turns red when you call him doctor. And he spends lots of time with his patients. And because of that, he's up at five in the morning dictating before he goes in. And they spend a lot of time. They put in 80 to 100 hour weeks. And our model has to change because we can't just type things in and hit a button and get paid. There is background work. There is preparation. There is a relationship you have to create with the patient so they come back to you. And when you get into this patient-centered care, when they call you at 5.05 and your shift was over at 4.30, you still have to give some care. Now, we've seen what's happened when the model is broken. COVID was the biggest test of our broken model. It's not all of our faults. I mean, we've all went to work and done the best we can in all of our jobs and all of our practice areas. COVID affected everybody's practice site, no matter where you worked, right? Right. And so what that is teaching us pharmacists, 
the doctors, the nurses, the whole team is the way we have created our model here in America shouldn't be replicated. We need to change that model. So I go back to 1980 and coming back from the Indian Health Service experience where it's team-based and everybody collaborates together and nobody has any egos and nobody is afraid of not contributing to the group because the patient is the important person. And we saw that in this past two years, but you guys put your blood, sweat, and tears into everything there is. And now we're exhausted because the model is not completely supporting us. Does that make sense? That's why I wrote that piece. We didn't start the fire. We ran toward the fire. And now I'm, I'm reading the, the results of the burnout and terrible abuse that many of you guys are getting verbally from patients who are frustrated and scared and the doctors hanging up to you because you won't fill the ivermectin. It's part of the chaos that goes in. I mean, we kind of went to war on this. COVID was kind of a warish situation. And now we've got to assess this and pull the really good practices and pearls out and then really sit down at the table and say, now we really got to change some of this. I mean, we're in the middle of it in Illinois right now. Here we have the ability to provide birth control to women, but the new oral antivirals for COVID, FDA doesn't think we have the ability to do it. We probably know more about that drug than anybody else has given it. You know, I've been chatting with one of my co-faculty and she is stationed in a community pharmacy and she has been actively involved in dispensing the new oral antivirals. And it's just in the past two weeks, we're recording this in late February, but the past two or three weeks, I've chatted with her about her role in that. And I am just so proud of what she's doing and how she's handling it. But you're right. She's doing it. We can do it, but we should be able to maybe lead that effort. Right. Instead of waiting for those prescriptions to come in and right. Right. kind of that, that on the back cast and treat should have been the, the same way we did monoclonal antibodies. We should have been given this mm-hmm. and somebody didn't want to see all of us community-based people being that involved. And consequently today I had a meeting. There is so much unused oral antivirals for COVID. It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. You want to know what fires me up? What fires me up is we can make a change and there are patients that we can help, especially in rural and underserved areas, urban areas where where there are no pharmacies or doctors and none of the fancy pants people want to go into these areas, but pharmacy will. And so we as a group of all pharmacists aggregated together have got to be united and show that love for our patients and that we're not just money, you know, I was on the inside. I was at Medicaid for all those years and there was a attitude toward pharmacy. The sad thing is when you talk to a government person, everything that starts with P-H-A-R-M is in one group. So you got pharmaceutical companies, you got pharmacy benefit managers, you got pharmacists, You've got corporate pharmacy and they just wrap it up into this one giant box. And then all of us good, hardworking people that are trying to do things for our patients are swept in with the ugliness of corporate America. Right. Like there's pharma and there's suits and then there's us and our white coats ready to take it on. Yeah. 
Also, it's yeah. funny, you we're talking about pharmacists can do it anywhere. Like we're the ones working in the basements. Pharmacists are literally working in closets that they cleaned out so there could be a pharmacist. Like we're literally doing the most. Yes. And the other thing I get is pharmacists are too expensive. Well, what other group has spent eight years learning nothing but the chemistry and the physiology of chemicals going through the body to help treat the diseases? Who else has spent that much time? Because if you add it all up, undergrad, grad, residency, and then your two years of being a new practitioner, you've got eight to 10 years Mm -hmm. invested in this process. And we're continuously learning. Every day, new something comes out. And then on top of that, layer in the technology. We're the first ones to jump on technology, right? Mm -hmm. So all these things make up what everyone comes to us with the computer questions. Yep. Because our brain can handle it all. We can talk to patients. We can bring it down and make it understandable to patients. We can help with the nurses and the registered dietitians. We can talk direct talk with the physicians and we can talk to a CEO about why we need a new computer system because the other one broke. I mean, they call it a, there's a math term where, you know, five different kinds of math issues. It's like multifaceted education. And most pharmacists are like that especially pharmacists that are in direct care that see patients. You've got all these soft skills that that we draw on. And and pharmacy school does that because it's, if you go through that boot camp, I call it the hunger games, the hunger (laughs) game boot camp, you come out and you're ready. And the sad thing is, is to stuff you over in a corner and tell you to count all these pills and put them in a bottle. And computers can do that. And robots can do that. And we can have pharmacist extenders like great technicians that can help us get to that process. No, we're not expensive. We're not any more expensive than any of the other eight-year degrees. Doctors of physical therapy, doctors of occupational therapy, we're at the same level. For some reason, they put baby in the corner. And that's what fires me up. It's been my goal since 1976 to prove that pharmacists are part of the team and our slice of the pie is the eight years that we grow all that pharmacotherapy information and now pharmacogenomics. And, you know, it just keeps layering on and we take it on. I mean, Mark went to med school. He only went to anatomy and physiology and the cadaver lab. He didn't have to go to any of the other classes because he had such a great background from pharmacy. When he graduated, the pharmacology department at the med school stood up to see who he was. He made straight A's through the whole thing. They take one semester of pharmacology. And oftentimes the residents will say that's their least favorite class. Right. Well, because they give them Goodman and Gilman. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's so exciting. <laughs> I mean, I like Goodman and Gilman. It it gives you the basics, but it's not something that you can apply practically in a clinical setting. Anyway, so what these philosophies and these experiences have taught me that I had to be my own boss and I had to create a niche that would help solve some of these problems, you know, because I could have went back and worked at the hospital because I was doing some population health there. I could have done all this stuff, but it it wasn't going to give me the flexibility and being my own boss did. And so one of the biggest breakthroughs was having the governor of Illinois drive up to the pharmacy I was working in and ask, is Starlin Hayden greeting here? The reason why he did that is the senator we had in Illinois at the time, Senator Paul Simon, my mom went to high school with him. He was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. 
And I was trying to get in his office to cover this for the journals and I couldn't get in, you know, because I was, you know, I was just, just another person trying to interview, you know, Senator Simon. So I called my mom up and I go, Hey mom, this is Senator Simon's Washington's office. I'll pay for the long distance phone call. Cause we didn't have cells, you know, we didn't have any of that. And she was a letter writer. And I said, can you call Senator Simon and ask him for 15 minutes so your daughter can interview him for the pharmacy journal. And she goes, yeah, that's going to cost a dollar a minute. I go, I'll pay for it, mom. <laughs> anyway, she calls. I get the 15 minutes. The 15 minutes turned into, I went every Thursday, I went into his office two hours after he had the Ways and Means Committee, and I helped him interpret all this garbage that was going on because he, he needed a translator. And who's the best medical translator in the country? Pharmacists are the best medical translators. So, and there was a whole bunch of information in that it was going to be a Medicare Medicaid bill. And then they had to carve Medicare off because everybody got afraid that it was going to change Medicare. And so in the Medicaid, over 90 was drug utilization review and counseling patients for all the Medicaid. So it basically in 1989, we started trying to expand the scope of practice of pharmacists using over 90 and the DUR legislation to put clinical pharmacy in our fingertips. And so when I came back, I was working relief. I was doing some nursing home consulting. I consulted for rehab centers. Anyway, so I was working at John Bono's pharmacy and it was, I called it the aquarium because it was all glass. <laughs> I go, you know, somebody's going to drive by and shoot me. I was always afraid of that. But the tech and I are sitting there and we're filling the nursing home carts and three black suburbans pull up and, and my tech goes, darling, don't look now, but there are three black suburbans. <laughs> and I go, so? And he goes, well, that's somebody important or <laughs> you didn't pay a bill or something. So the governor of Illinois gets out and his little entourage comes in and he knocks on the little pharmacy window. And I made my tech go answer because he wanted to be part of this. We're looking for Starlin Hayden greeting. <laughs> and he goes, well, that's the pharmacist, but she's really busy right now. And, you know, he was, they go, well, we'll wait. And there was like a little lobby and they, they went and sat down and waited for me. <laughs> Because I had to come back around and I had to lock it, you know, to go out and talk to them. Anyway, so I did all this stuff. And then, you know, he goes, you know, I understand you're busy, but Paul Simon, we've got this new law that's going to take effect in six months. And, and Senator Simon said that Nancy Hayden's daughter <laughs> was well-versed in this Obra stuff. Would you come and strategically plan the process? It, it, it just takes six weeks. Hey, this was a great opportunity, right? So 23 years later... <laughs> I'm actually still on a contract reviewing the opioids for them. I was very proud of that because the first phase of all that to get the information into the hands of the pharmacist was to get rid of paper, let's get it into the computers, right? And so that's the first thing we did. So Illinois was the first state to come up on electronic claims processing. And I built the prospective drug utilization review system on that. So yes, I'm one of those geeky informatics people that understand algorithms. But don't you think we all do? Because by the time you learn your dispensing or your hospital system or whatever system you're doing, anything you're on, you have to get out, you know, you're either on YouTube or you're getting a, a dummy book and you're looking at the process. So you understand the vertical 
and horizontal processing of what we need. And, you know, what is missing, not so much today, but back in the 90s, they were building systems and they didn't have pharmacists or doctors or nurses telling them what we actually needed, right? So that's another thing that you lean in on. If something isn't working in your workflow, get involved in trying to fix the puzzle, because I think that's another great thing that pharmacists do, right? Untangle Mm -hmm. that puzzle. How long did it take the two of you to figure out how to do these podcasts and edit all the processes? Remember your first one? Remember how long it took you to get all the, to get it down to where it was in a, in a half an hour or however long you do? Yeah, we're still working on it. Still a work in progress. It's always a work in progress. Because there's always something that comes out that lets you kind of edit that a little bit nicer or a little cleaner or a better microphone or (laughs) just go, it's never ending. And that's that gumption and passion and fortitude that pharmacists have is what moves us through the process. That's why we ran toward the fire. We just need to be recognized for that. And that's why you belong to organizations because you can't do it alone. And when you graduate, the school takes care of you while you're there. And even if you were, if I were your boss, you still need to look out for you. I look out for as much as I can, but each of us have to do our own protection for your liability, for your education, for your professional development. If you're relying on some corporate C-suite person to provide that for you, then they can take it away. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That that just hit me. Yes. Does that translate? So if someone buys it for you and then you leave them and then you want to do your own thing, you may not be able to use that training because so-and-so paid for it because it's a conflict of interest, right? So it's really important for you to be in charge of your professional development and in charge of your future so that we can practice pharmacy how we want to, not how somebody in the C-suite thinks we should be practicing it. And that's why you belong to the state association. And I belong to many. I, you know, believe me, I have a lot of dues that I pay, but I get something different from each of the organizations. Am I so proud that we have the JCPP where all the organizations now are working well together? That just warms my heart because for a while we were fighting each other. And while we were all fighting each other, the world was building silos around all the practices of pharmacy. But we all have the same education. We all have the ability to do everything that we want to do. Hi, everyone. We hope you like what you're hearing so far from our special Hygieia Day guest, Starlin. There is more to come with this conversation in part two, which is coming soon. We hope you're feeling fired up about pharmacy. Talk to you soon. If you or your local family farms lamb are interested in sponsoring an episode, please reach out to the podcast hosts or Aaron Regala at LKSHQ. As we work to produce meaningful content for our sisters, please send us an email at lambtalkspodcast at lks.org if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. Additional updates can also be found on the LKS social media channels, Instagram at Lambda Kappa Sigma, Twitter at LKS1913, and Facebook. While you're enjoying Lamb Talks, don't forget to leave us a review, rate five stars, and share with fellow sisters potential new members, and other pharmacists. We thank you for listening 
and we'll see you in two shakes of a lamb's tail.